Jericho Road is a podcast and a Sunday school class and a ministry of St. Luke's Episcopal Church in Birmingham, Alabama. These days, we're looking at the world of Jesus as it is told by the Gospel of Mark. We hope you'll join us. Well, hey, everybody. Welcome back to Jericho Road. We are in this nearing the end of season three, where we've been looking at the world of Jesus as it is told by the Gospel of Mark. And this this particular episode is the second part of a three-part podcast where we're looking at a series of attacks upon Jesus by his political enemies in the last week of his life. Jesus has left the safety of the Galilee. Uh, he's left a three-year journey of miracles and teachings and healings. He's closed that chapter of his life, and now these these very, very serious political opponents are, are circling in. And Jesus does more than elude a trap. Rather, what Jesus does is he gives us a working theology. He continues to teach us right up until the cross, which becomes his own new kind of learning. So that's what we're going to try to do uh, today. In the last podcast, we saw the chief priest come after Jesus because of what he did. This time, uh, Herodians and Pharisees, new enemies that we'll learn about today, uh, come after him because of what he said. So we're going to look at Mark chapter 12, beginning with the 13th verse, ending with the 17th. Hey, it's a story most Christians who grew up in Sunday school already know, but we're going to try to look at this in a completely new way. It's about paying taxes or not. All right, let's go. Mark 12, 13. Then they sent to him some Pharisees and some Herodians to trap him in what he said. And they came and said to him, teacher, we know that you are sincere. You show deference to no one, for you do not regard people with partiality. To teach the way of God in accordance with truth. Is it lawful to pay taxes to the emperor or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why are you putting me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me see it. And they brought one. Then he said to them, Whose head is on it? Whose title? They answered, The emperor's. And Jesus said to them, Give to the emperor the things that are the emperor's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were utterly amazed at him. Well, it begins with verse 13. They sent, they sent to him some Pharisees and some Herodians to trap him in what he said. The first thing we noticed here is that as a common enemy, enemy rather, Jesus makes some strange allies come together. Pharisees and Herodians are the strangest of bedfellows because they normally wouldn't even be in the same sentence. Let's remember what we know about Pharisees. Pharisees were learned teachers and upholders of God's law so that people living in the world of Jesus could differentiate from their Gentile neighbors or their Roman overlords. And Pharisees longed for independence from all this with a return of the mighty Davidic kingdom. Herodians, as best as we can tell, were much more accommodating to culture. So that's one way they wouldn't get along. Uh, they were a public political party loyal to Herod and his dynasty. They too longed for independence from it all but they wanted to restore a Herodian kingdom. Now, in an earlier podcast, around Christmas time, it was the podcast on Joseph, we learned about King Herod tracing his citizenship, if not even his own lineage, his own blood, to the country of Edom, which is the land of Esau. And I'm beginning to appreciate that Genesis chapter 25 is a really, really important uh, chapter in the whole of the libraries that we, of our library that we call the Bible, rather. Uh, and in Genesis chapter 25, we see God's blessing go to Jacob, who's the younger brother of Esau, which was never done, but done this time in no small part or allowed to happen in no small part 
because Esau is a man ruled by his appetites. Fast forward two millennia to the world of Jesus, and we see a nightmare king from Edom, Herod and his children all ruled by their appetites and looking like any other hedonistic rulers of the day. Now you can see why the Pharisees and Herodians don't hang out, but they do now because they have a common enemy, and they even they even taunt him in a way when they say, um, they say, Teacher, we know that you're sincere and show deference to no one, for you do not regard people with partiality, but teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. That's verse 14. Yeah, right. Uh, Jesus has a word for this. He calls them hypocrites. And you might remember in an earlier podcast, we talked about a Roman city very near the city of Nazareth called Sepphoris, which was a Roman town that was within walking distance. It was completely rebuilt during the entirety of Jesus' lifetime which is to say that that Joseph and Jesus, Joseph called a carpenter by tradition, but the word tecton means laborer. Joseph and Jesus being laborers as they as Jesus grew up in the town of Nazareth for most of, most of his adult life, would have, would have no doubt worked in Sepphoris, which was the only economic engine in that area, which also means that Jesus would have walked by this large and lovely Roman theater on the main road as you walk into town. And in this theater, uh, which, which, they, which they did again and again and again, actors would take the stage in this Greco-Roman context and they would wear a mask. And behind that mask, they could, they could show someone that they're smiling or that they're frowning. Uh, they could convey mood. Uh, they would act out the play. And actors wearing this sort of mask would be called hypocrite. It's the perfect word that Jesus could use for these people who should be enemies, but now they're united, and now they're trying to trap him up with syrupy words of of praise. They are hypocrites. Jesus is a threat to them because of a story he told in the temple precincts. This is the showdown. Jesus tells a story, and they come after him. It's a parable, actually. You can read it just a few verses earlier in Mark chapter 12. And parables are stories that Jesus would tell to draw you into a larger truth, but they're always based on things that everyone saw all around. And so this parable is about an absentee landlord who who owns, or or an absentee farmer, if you will, who owns a, a vineyard run by tenants. And I'll explain something to you that Jesus grew up with. Jesus grew up on in the town of Nazareth, which is a hilltop town overlooking the Jezreel Valley, which was and is the breadbasket of their part of the world. It's, a, it's about 10 miles wide. It's about 30 miles long. It is a beautiful, beautiful lush valley, and it is industrial farmland today, and it was industrial farmland then, which means that wealthy landowners would, would drive people's poor farmers off their land, oftentimes because of rolling tax debt, which we'll say something about taxes in a minute. Um, off their land into places like poor places like Nazareth while they would uh, work these farmers then as tenants if they got to work the land at all, sort of like sharecroppers. And we know something about this experience because those of us who live in the American South with the experience, the economy of a farming economy based upon slaves and then later upon sharecroppers or tenants in that way. You know, I love to talk about archaeology in this podcast and I point you to archaeology all the time. But we do have archaeology close to home. You don't really have to go very far away to see some really interesting things. And I invite you, if you're ever in the town of Montgomery, Alabama, uh, to look up and call the good folks at Good Shepherd in Montgomery. It's an Episcopal church, and it's the second oldest Episcopal church building in that city. And they're, they are friendly, and they would love to, they love to show off their building. And what's fascinating about it is the Good Shepherd was built by freed 
African-American people by them, by them and for them. The building wasn't given to this community. They built a beautiful church building for themselves, and they were gifted uh, the pews from St. John's in downtown Montgomery, which were the slave pews of that church. So if you go to this church, you see a church built by freed African-American people who were formerly enslaved, built a, a magnificent worship structure with the pews that they prayed in as enslaved people, which makes this church in many ways a, an Ellis Island of the African-American economic experience and also the worship experience as they transition into free into free people. It is, it is a national landmark that nobody really knows about, and they would love to show you, and I hope that one day it will rank among all the, the things in this nation that you need to see. Well, we know something about tenants and servants and, and that sort of thing if we live in this part of the South. And I want you to imagine now with this parable about a landowner who's so wealthy, he doesn't even live on his farm. But what he does is he sends his slaves uh, to collect from these wicked, we find out wicked tenants who refuse to share in their portion of the vineyard, which is the landowner's right. So when he tries to collect, they beat his slaves again and again and again. This is the story Jesus tells. Finally, they kill one of his slaves. So he decides to send his, quote, beloved son. Very important word, provocative word, actually. Beloved is the word that Jesus used, excuse me, God used for Jesus at his baptism. Beloved is the word that God spoke to uh, the disciples at the transfiguration. This is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. Beloved is a word even used at the binding of Isaac in Genesis chapter 22. In other words, Jesus is tempting them or luring them into hearing that this story, this parable of a landowner with wicked tenants and finally sending his own beloved son uh, to be killed is about Jesus. It's about him. And when the son is killed, the landowner destroys the tenants and gives the farm to others. And then the landowner quotes in the the story, Psalm 118, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is amazing in our eyes. Well, there's several shades of meaning to the story, and in any three would have enraged the Herodians and the Pharisees. First of all, for us Christians, it's a prediction of what would happen to Jesus, that, that the enemies would kill him, and then he would be resurrected in three days, and there would be a new kingdom, and we can all now claim Abraham as our father, and, and, right, and God's promises will continue uh, past the grave, and that life is our destiny, and the atoning blood of Jesus is something to save the whole of humanity. We can go on and on and on, and we'll preach that sermon again when we get closer to the passion. Then there's a more general application to this parable, too. What happens in a disordered world, a life lived by appetites alone, has no logic, no compassion, just murder and mayhem. And, and when, we, when we stray from God's promises, we enter a nightmare world of our own. And then thirdly, I think this is also the story of the power of martyrdom, which may be immediately on the minds of the Pharisees and the Herodians as they, as they draw near to Jesus and try to put him in a trap. They hear this story and they hear that Jesus is playing all the cards here because if they make him a martyr, he'll have power. I've got a good example. According to a fifth century historian, the, the gladiatorial games in Rome ended with the martyrdom of a monk named Telemachus in the year 404. What had happened, Rome had been, quote, Christian, unquote, for almost a century, uh, but they still had the games where men would fight each other to the death, and it was great entertainment, right? And this monk named Telemachus uh, apparently walked out into the 
floor of the Coliseum and he tried to stop them fighting. It so enraged the, the crowds because they were there for the entertainment that they threw rocks and they stoned him to death. But his martyrdom so impressed the emperor that he ended the games forever. So martyrs can make things happen. And so these unlikely bedfellows, the Herodians and the, and the Pharisees, set a trap for Jesus. And the trap is verse 14. Is it lawful to pay taxes to the emperor or not? Talk about a hot-button issue, mainly because in the world of Jesus, which is the first century, Rome was already an empire suffering from being stretched too thin. I'm no economist, but I, I think I've got a handle on this, and I'll try to try to walk you through what was happening in Rome at the time of Jesus. You know, in the early days of the Roman conquest, as they expanded their territory, which was about 150 years before Jesus' birth, Rome was flush with cash. Say they burned down a city like Corinth, all that wealth would go straight to Rome. They had so much money that I, I've read that the Roman emperors would throw pennies in the parades. I mean, nobody had to pay taxes and all the money was in the capital city. But after 150 years or so, uh, the wealth shifted from west to east. I mean, standing armies are expensive to start with, but also in the east, which would be Egypt, and then the Near East, which would be Judea, uh, these places would become the breadbasket of the Roman Empire, which means that, that the money would be spent to buy bread, uh, which would mean that over 150 years, that the money would be in the east and no money in the west, but you can always grow more wheat. How do you get money back in the West so that you can buy more bread and keep the empire going? Taxes. That's how you get the money back. And in the world of Jesus, there were three kinds of taxes for Jewish people living in Judea, which was under direct Roman rule. You had a half-shekel temple tax that they all had to pay. Nobody was exempt there. Then you had the indirect taxes, such as sales taxes or custom duties or travel taxes or taxes on just about anything, including the road you traveled or the cart that you pulled your produce, and they all hated those. And then there was an imperial tax, which was a head tax, consisting of one denarius paid annually by all the adult women and men in Judea, and they hated it. I mean, taxes began the zealot movement that would eventually cause the temple to be destroyed in AD 70. So this was the most hot-button trap they could pick for Jesus. If he says, pay taxes to the emperor, they can turn the crowds against him. If he says, don't pay taxes to the emperor, they can have him arrested. In response, Jesus asks for a coin. Now, Roman coins were not only the currency, but they were the mass communication of the day. They told you who was in charge. You could look at the emperor's head and know which regime you were living under. But coins in Judea, Judea rather, were unique because they're anti-iconic, which means no face obeying the laws of Moses. So this is the purpose of the money changers in last week's podcast. You had to exchange those coins. If you traveled from a Roman place and you had a coin with the emperor's face on it, you had to change that out for something anti-iconic so that you could conduct temple business or pay the temple tax. Jesus asked for a coin. So they reach in the, somebody reaches in their pocket and pulls it out, which immediately points to their hypocrisy again, right? The face behind a mask. I mean, this the hypocrite is the perfect word for these guys because they're not supposed to have this coin on them, especially at the temple, but they do. So the coin itself becomes becomes a symbol, if you will, of, of how wrong they are. Uh, whose head is on this, Jesus asks in verse 16. The word is better translated image, and that's the way it's translated in the King James Version of the Bible. I think that's really closer to it because it connects us directly 
to Genesis chapter 127. We are all made in the image and likeness of God. And this clears up a misperception. Let me try to explain the misperception. We've probably all grown up with this. Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar and to God the things that are God's. In our Sunday school days, we were probably taught that this means that we should separate church and state. That some things are the government's business, some things are God's business. Uh, But that's not what he means. If he's connecting us to Genesis chapter 1, this means that we're all created in God's image, which means that God is Lord over all everything, both the secular and the sacred. There's nothing above God. And this brings us back to why I go to this again and again. While the story of the exile is such an important backstory in all of Scripture, remember remember the story that we tell. 600 years before Jesus' birth, God's people lost everything. The Babylonians burned their temple, they burned their town, and they moved them to a faraway land and they thought they'd lost God as well. But way out in Babylon, far, far away from the temple and everything that they knew, God called a prophet, a prophet way out there, even there. God talked to them way out there, even there. God promised they could go home way out there, even there. They left with an incomplete understanding of God, which we which we will call monolatry, which means that they believed in their local God and their local place, and they were asked to be loyal to, to their God there, uh, but other people had other gods too. They returned with a relationship, which is monotheism, which means that God is Lord over all. To say, give to the emperor the things that are the emperor's and to God the things that are God points us to a very practical theology. For starters, this encounter is another example of Jesus' enemies confusing means and ends and Jesus refusing to go there. But I'll end this podcast with a story to show you uh, how this works in the here and in the now. When I was a young person, uh, my uh, beloved Church of the Ascension in Montgomery uh, divided, the congregation divided. And this was at a time of social turmoil and a time of, of, of a leadership uh, decision on the part of some of the congregation uh, to move away from our denomination. And my family left that church, and I have many friends who've left that church. And so what you had was pain on two sides. Uh, there was the very real pain of sacrifice uh, and and the pain and the heroic, if you will, decision of a congregation to start again and to raise money again and to wander in exile again until they could build their own church. And then there was the pain of people who were left behind who were confused while the church had split and there were recriminations and accusations. And you had families that were just torn right down the middle who just preferred not to talk about it, people who love each other deeply. And it just, it confused, it confused the community uh, for, for a long, long time. I think it's pretty much settled down now, but it was a story. And I remember asking an old priest who at the time, near death, uh, was a, a mentor to me and, and much like a daddy to me and a very funny and generous man. And his name is Mark Waldo. And I remember asking Mark if he'd been to the new church out, out on the other side of town. I asked him if he'd seen it. And I was probably being kind of gossipy and I just want to know what he thought and if he had anything funny to say. And, and he really put me in my place with a really wise statement. He said, oh, I've seen their new church. Oh, it's terrible. They have side aisles. See, we didn't have side aisles at Church of the Ascension. We just had one center aisle, which means that if you had to go to the restroom, everybody in the church knew it. And in a funny and generous way, uh, my friend and mentor and a very wise man of God put me in my place. What he's saying is, Rich, I'm not going to go there with you. 
They have side aisles, which is just being cute and funny and saying that I love them. God loves them. Uh, churches are simply means to an end. Our churches, churches are intended to draw us into union with God and with each other. And who cares how we get it done? There should be a good church on every corner in every city. And so we're the ones who make mistakes and we're the ones who split and we're the ones who leave mad or we're the ones who stay behind and cry and we're the ones who, who accuse and we're the ones who uh, get turned around. But God is sovereign over all. God is over all of this. God is taking care of us and restoring us and healing us and bringing us home and reminding that even in times of exile, and this might be a spiritual exile, God is still talking, God is still leading, God is still loving and over all. So what we see here in this encounter is that right up into the edge of the cross, Jesus continues to teach and to lead and to show us a better way of being human. Well, let's keep this going, guys, and thank you so much for listening. See you next time.